you, brother. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. It's really good to be worshiping with you. I loved just singing glory to God and hearing, hearing a church that's not my church give God glory is, is really encouraging. Um, God's, to me, just to think how God is so faithful to build his church all over the world and, um, and even our, our like-minded sister church here across town. And, and so I'm grateful to be here and encouraged to be here. And so thank you for letting me worship with you this morning. We're going to study in James 5 what the Bible says about confession. It's, it's kind of actually mostly about prayer, but um, the idea at first was confession. And we'll, we'll see a little bit more about what that means as we get there. Um, but we're going to go to James 5, and the text is James 5, 13 to 20, if you would. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles. And, and while you turn there, um, I, I just want to pray and ask for the Spirit's help. So if you'd pray with me. Well, Father, you are gracious and merciful and love to care for your church. You've promised sanctification to your people, and we know that it is your will to make them more into the image and likeness of your Son, and so we ask that by your Spirit you would do that through your Word, and uh, Lord, that this Word would not be a, a, a persuasive words of wisdom, but would be a demonstration of your Spirit's power. So send him now, we, we ask, Lord, in, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, James 5, 13 to 20. This is what the Lord says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." This is the word of the Lord. The first thing you should notice about this text, right, is like I said, it's not exactly about confession. At least it's not primarily about confession. Confession is mentioned once. Meanwhile, prayer, if you look for the text, let him pray. Let him sing praise. Let them pray. The prayer of faith. Pray for one another. The prayer of a righteous person. He prayed fervently. He prayed again. This passage is about prayer. But it's because of what James teaches about prayer that he makes an application. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So, right, so there's the substance to this passage, which is um, prayer. And then there's the application, which is confession and prayer. And then there's even an illustration here from the Old Testament. So to me, I'm looking at this thinking this has all of the elements already of a sermon. Right. So this is where we're going to go. Three main headings. The first is the power of faithful prayer. That's the foundation that James builds for us to be able to get to those commands. And so the second thing we'll look at are those commands. I call them the therefore commands here. 
And then after those, we're going to look and see what James says is the outcome of the Spirit's work and our obedience through um, confession and prayer. So it's the effect of our obedience because that's where James goes here. So let's get into that first heading now, the power of faithful prayer. Right? The first part of this passage could be summarized with one phrase, pray in all circumstances. Right? He says, is anyone among us suffering? Those are the darkest times. Even in those times, he should pray. And all the way on the other side, is anyone cheerful? Even in the brightest times, let him sing praise to God, which is to pray. Right? Then we get into more specific scenarios. Is anyone sick? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray. And if he's committed sins, what? he should pray so, or confess and then, so that he may be prayed for. Right? So pray in all circumstances. And then James gives us the reason why he tells us to pray in all circumstances. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Right, so James says prayer accomplishes things. Right? It changes things. Prayer isn't a, a perfunctory exercise. It's not just mere exercise in spirituality. There is purpose and meaning behind prayer. And, and that's because God willed before all time to work through the prayers of his people to accomplish things in the world, right? So prayer accomplishes things because God planned before all time to use prayer to work in this world. There's a number of examples to, uh, of that in the scriptures, many, many, many of them, and we actually have one in this text with Elijah, and we're, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But before that, I think the foundation that we have to have to get through this text is, why is prayer powerful? Or, or maybe better said, what makes prayer powerful? And if you asked a very theologically-minded person why prayer is powerful, they might give you the answer that we just said, right? Prayer is powerful because God decided in his wisdom to use the prayers of his people to bring about his will in this world. But I think it's important to go back even and get a little bit more foundational with why prayer is powerful. And so three reasons I, I want to go through so that we can understand why prayer is so powerful in this text. Three reasons. One, because God is powerful. Two, because God hears our prayers. And, and three, because God is delighted to answer prayers made in faith. Right. So if, if we're not convinced in our hearts that prayer is powerful, I think we might be in danger of missing the importance of the application, which is confession. Right. So if, if we're not praying for one another to be freed from our sins, it may be because we don't believe or understand the greatness of the power of prayer. And so I, I want the Spirit to work through His Word to give us more faith in our faithful God who hears our prayers and is faithful to answer them. All right, so let's go through those three reasons. One, prayer is powerful because God is powerful. There is no intrinsic power in the words that come out of our mouths when we pray. Right? Prayer is powerful because by its nature, prayer made in faith is prayer to our powerful God. Right? And so I think then we need to go back and find confidence in the power of God. How can we know that the God who hears our prayers is powerful? And the Bible provides a very clear answer, and the answer is that we see a demonstration of his power every day in his creation. Right? Romans 1.20 for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. And so, want to be amazed at the breadth of the power of God, look at what he's made. 
Everything in all of creation is here because God intelligently designed and then made it. We have a whole account in Genesis 1 and 2 of God doing things that we cannot do, right? Bringing form to a, a formless world, creating vegetation and fish and livestock and mankind out of nothing. That's what the power of God can do. And, and there's no other being that even comes close. Right, so if we're feeling maybe our understanding of the power of God is too low, we might go ponder what it takes to make a tree. Right? Just the intelligence and thoughtfulness and creativity. I couldn't have even thought of the idea of a tree. Right? Those are already beyond us. But then the power to create something out of nothing. A living, growing thing out of nothing. None of us can make a tree. And, and we're meant to learn about God's power by observing things like that. If it, think Psalm 19, 1 through 6. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat." If you think it's difficult to make a tree, try making a 125 billion galaxies. By the way, that's a rough estimate. I don't trust that we know how to count the number of galaxies, but that's if you Google it what it says. I think that's probably a pretty conservative estimate. But then within those galaxies, counting every star and naming it, remembering its name, that's what God does, right? Psalm 147.4. God is powerful, and all of creation reminds us every day just how incredibly powerful God is, if we would just stop and think about it. But even more than creation and looking outside, this book is full of examples of God's particular working of his power. And so we can read through the scriptures and see from the story of Ruth, like incredible everyday providence, to signs and wonders like raising Lazarus from the dead. We have ample evidence in, in this book of God's power. Brothers and sisters, it is not our words that are intrinsically powerful. It's the one who hears and answers our prayer. That's right from James, verse 15. Not the prayer accomplished. The Lord will raise him up, it says. The Lord Right Behind every providential answer to prayer is not some mysterious force that comes because our words made it happen. No, behind every providential answer to prayer is a powerful God. Right? That's important in this text because when our wonderful brothers and sisters in this church pray for us to be freed from our sin, right, they bring that request to a God who is more than powerful enough to answer They. So this is, this is the God who stopped a persecutor Pharisee, Paul, in his tracks and changed his heart in an instant, right? The changing of our hearts is not beyond the power of God. That's why prayer is powerful. Point two here. Prayer is powerful because God hears our prayers. He hears us. And I, I think many of us, especially when we're suffering, are inclined to think, does God even hear me? to ask that question, but the passage starts out. That's the first thing it lists. Is anyone among you suffering? 
let him pray. God encourages us in all circumstances to pray because he wants to hear from us. And then the doubt that may come into our minds is, okay, if God wants to hear from me and I'm suffering or in any of these circumstances, why has he not answered my prayers? And to answer that question, I think I found one belief to be incredibly important to work through in personal discipleship and counseling. It's one belief that's incredibly foundational to how we live the Christian life, has to be held with some strength of conviction in our souls. And it's one belief that's hard to hold to at times. And so this is, the, this is what we have to really, really believe. God knows what is good for me better than I do. Right? Our immeasurably loving and wise Father is trustworthy, and if our idea of prayer is that we go and bring our request before God and he gives us everything that we ask for exactly as we've asked for it, I think we may have greatly overestimated our own wisdom. Right? We bring it before God, the trials, the suffering, the sickness, the sins, the praise. We bring specific requests. We do so trusting in our God who hears, knowing what is best for us. God knows what we need better than we know what we need. And he hears when we come to him. He hears always. But he hears as our Father who knows best. Three, prayer is powerful because God is delighted to answer prayers made in faith. He's delighted to. He wants to answer our prayers. That's why he tells us over and over and over again to pray. Because he wants to answer our prayers. Just as he he encourages us in this passage to do that. But we see here, James included a very interesting prepositional phrase after prayer, again, in verse 15 of this passage. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That idea is here at the end of the book of James, but it's also right at the beginning of the book. James 1, 5 to 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But... Let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to warn you, there are many false teachers who distort this idea to mean something that it absolutely does not. And so that we're not confused, I think it's important to talk about what it means to pray in faith. Those kinds of prayers that God is delighted to answer. Right, so... To answer what is a prayer made in faith, we can just define faith. What is faith? Faith is confidence in God. Right? When James says, let them ask in faith, he doesn't mean that we should have faith in our words right, to bring about what we think is right. He means we should have faith in the one that we're speaking to, the one that we're asking of. Right? Faith is confidence in God hearing and knowing and doing what is best. That's the kind of faith we must have when we pray. Right? And, and I'd add, James does expect that we pray for what we believe to be lawful and wise. A, a prayer of faith is a faithful prayer. Right? That's why First John said what we read earlier, if we ask anything according to his will. But the bottom line is, God makes the decisions. Right? We don't get to twist God's arm into doing what we think is best just by believing really, really strongly that he will do it. Right? There's no way from the entire message of the scriptures and certainly not from this message in James that we can get that. And to think that would make so much of us and so little of God who is meant to be the object of our faith. Right? 
But to look at this in the positive rather than the negative. When we, when we pray with confidence in the wisdom and power of God, according to his will, he is delighted. He loves to answer our prayers. God wants to answer our prayers. He encourages us to pray. Now, even after that, you, you may be thinking, like, asking in faith, doubting nothing, that still seems to be an impossible task. Right? And, and the text says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. How righteous must we really be? Um, and, and brothers and sisters, there are some theological truths you, you point out here, right? You can look into the scriptures and see the righteousness of Christ already applied to us. Or we could look in the Bible, we could see that the Spirit helps us to have faith. But I think there's an even more clear encouragement in this text, a more explicit encouragement. Elijah. Right, you may read the example of Elijah and uh, be even more discouraged. That was maybe my first reaction. Right, Elijah was a prophet, a very important one. Right? He, he uh, appeared and spoke with Jesus at the transfiguration. He was the, the predecessor of John the Baptist. Um, he was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind, in a whirlwind by a chariot of fire. Right? He didn't even die. James picked a pretty overqualified example. I, I, I wonder if he couldn't have picked, there's so many other examples, like Doubting Thomas or Jonah or Gideon, people that I could more easily relate to. But the Bible doesn't, James doesn't let us think that, not even for a second, right? He intended to squash that kind of idea about Elijah right before it popped into our head. The first thing he says about Elijah, the first thing, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. James intended immediately to squash that idea and say, listen, don't go get some high and lofty ideas about Elijah. And maybe my laundry list of qualifications doesn't help with that. But in this text, he was a man with a nature like ours. But he was a man who prayed. And when he prayed, there was a drought that lasted three years and six months. And when he prayed again, 1 Kings 18.45 says, The sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was heavy rain. Right? That's the power of the prayer of a righteous man. And brothers and sisters, the God who withheld the rain and poured it out at the right time because of Elijah's prayer is the God who we approach as we pray. Right? Our sinful desires and our sinful inclinations and our sinful choices, they are not beyond God's hand to change. Right? The prayer of your righteous brothers and sisters in this church is powerful to heal you of your sin. That's James' message. And all of that is incredibly important to understand so that we can get to these two applications that James makes. And so that's where we're at now, the therefore commands. The first that he says, confess your sins to one another. And the second is pray for one another. Right? But let's start with confess your sins from one another, for, to one another. From this text, I think we can be confident that if we are not confessing our sins to one another, we likely don't understand the greatness of the power of prayer to heal us from those sins, or we don't understand just how weighty and serious those sins are. And this text deals with both of those. Right, we're going to end it a little bit by going back to the power of uh, uh, to the, the effect of powerful prayer and talking about what it does. But sneak peek here from verse 20. If you're wandering from the truth, as being dishonest about your sin, and someone brings you back, that person has saved your soul from death. That's the path you're on. 
Right? James writes this earlier in James, James 1, again, James 1, 14 to 15. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. And he bookended this with that. It brings forth death. Brothers and sisters, if there is a sin in your life that is unconfessed, it is a danger to your soul. And if it's not confessed, you're missing one of the greatest graces God has given us. A church that prays for us. Right? God wills to work through the prayers of his church. And if you have a sin that you're keeping a secret, don't let your church pray for you. That's the encouragement. And I know, at least I think I know, what goes through people's minds when we talk about confession to the church. And it's a lot of what-ifs. Right? Surely there's wisdom in who I confess to. There's wisdom in how I confess. And the answer to that is, yes, there is wisdom in how you confess. Right? There's no X equals Y guide in the Bible. Right? If this is the sin, this is who you tell, and this is exactly how you tell it. But the Bible gives us all of the wisdom that we would ever need to know how to rightly confess our sins. And, and the general rule, I think, if we're going to take away one general piece of wisdom from the Scriptures is this. If you have sins in your life that not a soul in this church knows about, you must confess. For your own good, confess. And let these saints pray for you. Right? There should be no sin that is a normal struggle to you that no one in this church knows about. Right? Most sins don't need to be confessed to the whole church. Right? You don't have to get up behind the pulpit and, and confess, yeah, I got angry this week. But you have to confess your sins. Using wisdom, you can confess to your friends in this church, your small groups or community groups, to your pastors. There are an incredibly, there's an incredibly large number of potential contexts for confession. Right? The inclination of our hearts should never be to hide our sin. Right? We should use appropriate wisdom about who we talk to about our sin, knowing that none of us should be struggling with unconfessed sin. There, and there's wisdom even in how we confess our sins, right? The details we go into. Depending on the sin struggle, some details may be more appropriate in one context than another. Right? And it's not worth, I don't, I don't think, laboring to list off a bunch of guidelines around how and when to confess. But I, I can say, your heart posture must be to confess so that you may be prayed for. And if, if the what-ifs are holding you back, possibly have a conversation with one of the wise saints in this church about what confession might look like. But do not let the what-ifs that run through your mind keep you from confessing sin that is a danger to your soul, putting you on a path toward death. No one in this church should be struggling with a sin that no one knows about. That's what James er, urges us to do. Confess your sins to one another. Right? But that's not all. With confession comes another command. Pray for one another. It is our responsibility to pray for our brothers and sisters to be freed from sin. We should be praying that our fellow members of our church would look more like Christ every week. Right? Paul does a great job of this in his epistles. He sets a great example for us. And so I, I want to read just a few portions of his prayers because these are prayers we could steal. Right? Philippians 1, 9 to 11. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a prayer to be praying. Here's another, right? Colossians 1, 9 to 10. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What great prayers to be praying for this church. We ought to be praying every day that God would help our brothers and sisters with whom, if if you're a member, you've entered into a covenant with to be living a life in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And how much more then, brothers and sisters, when someone is caught in a particular sin, should we be fervently praying for that God would rescue them from that sin? Because God's powerful to do it and wills to work through our prayers to rescue them. And again, I think I cannot say it better than Paul did in Ephesians 6, 16 to 18. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He says it twice. That's bringing the needs of your fellow saints before the Father. Praying for one another You praying for your fellow members in this church is one of the offensive weapons that we have in the fight of faith. We have the sword, which is this, the word of God, and with it, we have praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, making supplication for all the saints. Don't miss this grace that God has given this church to be praying for one another. Now, in a minute, we're going to look at how this text describes the effects of our prayers But first, I think, brothers and sisters, it would be good for us to take a second and consider which of these two commands that we've looked at is for you. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Which one would be for you? Okay, that was pretty tricky because if you pick just one, right, you made the wrong choice. And I'm only getting to know some of you, and I, I know some of you well, but knowing you guys, I, I think there were probably red flags when I asked that question. Right? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Those are commands for all of us. There's not a group of confessors and then another group of prayers. Right? Talking about sin, confessing, should be a normal occurrence in this church because all of us struggle with remaining sin. We do, right? First, first John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We all sin. There is no one in this church who need not be a confessor. No one. And and I know, again, things that run through people's minds when we're talking about confession. I think just as a practical encouragement, one thing that would make it easier for younger Christians is if those who are older in the faith would lead by example with confession. Be real with how we describe the Christian life. We know, you know, you older Christians, you know the struggle with sin is always real. There's victory in the Christian life, and I don't want to communicate that it's all failure and doom. It's not. 
prayer is powerful to change us, right? But even the most mature Christians in this room deal with remaining sin. And so my encouragement to you would be to set an example, right? And in doing so, help to set a culture of confession that leads to prayer in this church. And to the younger Christians, again, a practical note, please don't neglect confession because you think that people in this church will judge you or see you as a worse Christian, right? The Christian life lived out in the church as it is meant to be, is not a competition where we compete against one another to see who can be the most holy. Right? The church is a group of people who work together, disciple one another, minister to one another, to help us all reach the finish line together in a manner worthy of the Lord. Right? No one is against you. We are for you. Confession happens because we are on the same team, working toward a common goal. Right? We talk about one another passages in the Bible. This is a double one another, right? Back to back, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. All of us should be confessing. And likewise, brothers and sisters, all of us should be praying. We all have the same great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every respect as we are and yet without sin. And therefore, all of us, every blood-bought Christian, can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Every person with confidence. There is no one in this church who need not be a prayer. Do not neglect praying for one another. Don't neglect it. That is such a gift of grace to this church. And if we have a culture of confession that leads to prayer, the Lord is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to, to see that God's faithfulness and righteousness working out. Now let's, let's look to, at the third point, right? What prayer does. There are four pieces of this text that stand out to me. Um, and so we're going back a bit to the power of prayer because I want us to see that if we understand the power of prayer and therefore we obey and confess and pray for one another, this text promises great hope. So we're going to look at four pieces of this text. The first is, if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. We can have confidence that God has forgiven and will forgive the sins of the people for whom Christ died. It's certain. You can always bank on it. If you are a praying, confessing, blood-bought Christian, you are forgiven. You will be forgiven. The second, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He has certainty there. It is God's will to heal you from your sins. But James places confession and prayer first. And with it, confidence that we would be healed. We've already said all Christians deal with remaining sin. But there is growth in the Christian life. There is freedom from sin. I think the biblical model that we see is as we mature in the faith, the Lord gives us greater and greater knowledge of the sin that we have. And Paul calls us, in Philippians 3.16, to hold true to the truth that we have obtained. Right, so it's a pro- sanctification is a process. All that to say, there is real healing from our sins, real freedom to be found through the grace that God has given us in confession and prayer. Right, it is true, we won't be perfect until we pass on from this life or until Christ returns, but we would be wrong to believe that any particular sin is just unshakable, this side of eternity. Here's the third piece of the text. The prayer of a righteous person 
has great power as it is working. It is working. Just to stress again, brothers and sisters, the prayer of a righteous person does something. It works. And it's powerful as it works. We can be confident that the prayer of the righteous works. And with those three pieces of the text together, it's confidence, confidence, confidence. We can take it away that if we are going to take sin seriously, we must be praying for one another to be healed. We must. If we're not confessing and praying regularly, we're missing one of the greatest grace gifts to the church. Confession and prayer is how God chose to work sanctification in his church. This is the fourth piece of the text. This is how James ends his letter. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Wanders from the truth. That means something very broadly, right? Wandering from the truth of Christ, the truth of the faith. But in the context of this, for James to end his letter like that and choose to use the word truth and wander from the truth, it seems clear that on top of that general application, there is a particular one, right? Wanders from the truth, not being truthful about your sin, concealing, lying, hiding your sin. Wandering like that puts you on a path toward death. That's what sin does. Sin, James 1, we read earlier, when fully grown, brings forth death. That's the same thing we see here. In that, we see how serious our sin is, but we also see how serious prayer is. James beats that drum over and over in this passage. If you bring back a sinner from his wandering, his soul is being saved from death. That's what's on the table with confession and prayer. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the last thing I'll say here, that I hope that we see confession and prayer through the lens of the gospel, right? We, we see in this text the power of a righteous brother who pleads with God to heal you from your sin. And I think it's appropriate, if, if not necessary then, to remind you that Christ himself, who is your brother, lives to intercede for you always, is praying for you even now before the throne of the Father. No one can bring a charge against you because he has paid your debt in full. And because he's paid your debt in full, if you are in Christ, your sanctification is sure. When we confess and pray, as the text encourages us to do, we are working towards something that has already been bought. It's already been paid for. The death of Christ has already purchased for us new life. This is Romans 8, 33-34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Paul connects Christ's intercession and his substitutionary death for us. That you defeat the sins that you struggle with, is as certain as the historical reality of the crucifixion and resurrection. But confession and prayer are God's instruments to bring about in us what has already certainly been accomplished on our behalf. While we still fight our remaining sin in this world, we have already been justified. 
we have already been fully reconciled to God. Right? The sin is not the barrier that keeps us from reconciliation. Christ's death reconciled us fully, finally, already. It's done. God already now is fully satisfied with us because of Christ's death and resurrection. But it's with that in mind that we confess and pray so that we can become more like him, more like Christ who died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are keenly aware of our great need for your help. More than help, Lord, for you to do the work in our hearts to make us like your Son. We know that sanctification is your will. We know that your word is powerful. We know that you've chosen to work through the prayers of the saints. And so, Lord, we believe, we are praying according to your will. Please help us to be more faithful in confession and prayer so that we may, as a church, be pleasing to you. So that we may walk in a manner that's worthy of this great gift that you've already given us of the gospel. Lord, come alongside. Help us. Help us. Plant your word that we read this morning deep into our hearts, that it would change us, that our minds would be renewed, that we'd be more like your son. Thank you, Father. What a gift it is to have this word, to open it up and to hear the counsel of our Father who loves us and knows what is best for us. What a gift, Lord. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this church, Lord. We, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.